Hey, yeah, hi. I'm James. For breakfast this morning, I had uh, scrambled eggs with uh, baby spinach, tomato, and some bacon. <laughs> nice. That sounds delicious. I can't think of any more human activity than conducting science experiments. The game I play is a very interesting one. It's imagination in a tight straitjacket. The beauty of a living thing is not the atoms that go into it, but the way those atoms are put together. What I always think should be the basis of education is not answers, but questions. We should teach kids how to question. Welcome to Blab Coats. My name is Amit Siddiqui. On this week's episode, we have Professor James Avanatakis, who is a Dean of Graduate Research at Western Sydney University. Now, before we get into the conversation with James, um, I'd like to make a call for action. If you haven't already done so, what I would like you to do is go onto Facebook and do it while I'm talking here. Uh, look up Blab Codes and like our page. For the guys that have already done this, what I'd like you to do is go on our Facebook page and give us a rating and write a few words about our podcast. Let us know if you like it, what episode you liked, um, anything that we can improve on. Uh, we're always open to suggestions and feedback. We always want to improve this podcast. But what this does also, it, it helps us spread the podcast because... Um, when people get on that Facebook page, they'll see the reviews of, uh, of our listeners and they'll see, oh, people actually genuinely enjoy what these guys are doing. And it's a, a useful resource. Uh, so if you could do that, much appreciated. But back to today's episode. So Professor James Avanatakis uh, talked to us about his journey into academia and the financial industry and back into the uh, academia. So this was a fascinating conversation and uh, I hope you guys enjoy it. Hey, yeah, hi, I'm James. For breakfast this morning I had uh, scrambled eggs with uh, baby spinach, tomato and some bacon. <laughs> nice, that sounds delicious. That sounds yeah. awesome. Are you a breakfast type of person? I breakfast, I cook breakfast every morning, yeah, oh, yeah, nice. yeah, yeah. So I'll get up at five every morning and usually go for a run or, or something wow. just to get my head into space. And uh, I try and do something that just totally chills me out, which is usually working. I'm also an old fella, mate, so I need to keep the, uh, inside this body is a very fat, <laughs> very, very fat Greek man waiting to get oh, out. So I need to keep, <laughs> I need to keep, I need to keep that fat Greek man inside the body, not outside the body. And, that's so uh, funny. and so, um, so yeah, so most mornings involve me getting up and going for a run or something. Right. And then, uh, yeah, cook breakfast, which is also time I get to spend with Alex because we both, because she works for Art Gallery and stuff. So sometimes nights, we don't see each other much at night. So breakfast is kind of this moment of sharing and. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I just going to turn my phone off, sorry. Yeah, no problem. I was going to say, I mean, being a, a rock star, that the type of, like, the work ethic that you must have uh, compared to us as students at this stage must be, like, over our head. Because I, I just compare myself to when I was an undergrad <laughs> or even a high school student. As a high school student, if I could see five, ten years ahead, I'm like, oh, I can't do that. Yeah. I feel like that's the similar case with you. Like, if you run us through what what sort of day you have in terms of what you do, I, I think it would probably blow us away. 
Yeah, I mean, it just, it just, I mean, it varies, but it's also trying to. I mean, no two days are the same, right? Because I also, I mean, I'm even though I'm still, you know, I'm deaning, I still try and do my research. I still try and do some teaching, um, you know, do public relations or public engagement stuff. So it just varies. Um, so you know, so today's like a pretty chill day. Like I've just got a few meetings on, um, doing a bit of writing, and then tomorrow. Um, but tomorrow. Um, is okay but then Wednesday is just like back to back like literally my first meetings at nine and my last meetings at like 6 30 so wow. and so every, it's just like basically from meeting to meeting to meeting and then Friday I've got ABC TV in the first thing in the morning and then I've got a um, presentation uh, at a conference to give um, and then I'm meeting with a couple of collaborators to talk about next our project so you know so it just varies um, right. so yeah so it's a matter of trying to eck out that space you know what I mean like you just can't let you don't want any one thing to just dominate you in in, in this position. So yeah, it's easy to just get caught up doing nothing but emails. Like I can just spend all day answering emails. Like honestly, I could just spend I could just sit there for eight hours and just respond to emails. Right. Yeah. So balance is an important thing, and yeah. I'm I'm learning that as well. Actually, when I was a bit younger, just a few years back, a bit younger, but I'll I'll, I'll be obsessed about working on one thing, and I found it really hard to find a balance because I'm a, a zero or 100 percent type of person. Yeah. I'm very extreme in that if I do something, I take it to the nth degree. And, and it's it's I'm realizing that I'm slowly trying to move away from that and get to a position where you are, where you can balance everything like like a master. But that's a skill I have to develop. Yeah, it's, it's interesting, interesting because the the only time you really get to focus on one thing is when you're doing your thesis, either your masters or your PhD, right? right? Every time, everything else, from the moment you finish that, and it, that's really, it's it's something that's really, you get really sad when you lose that. Like you don't realize, like you look back now, and I look at people doing their PhDs and their masters, and I go, wow, I remember how awesome that was and at the time it was like it kills you right because you're going oh, i just want to do something else you know but um but yeah which i think is is interesting but you do you just get you just get better at it. you just learn like it's just practice you know it's like i always say everything that we do is like i always compare riding or everything that we do to like running a marathon like you just can't get up and run you know you you learn you, you practice you you get better at it you make errors you make mistakes you learn how to pace yourself you learn how to switch on from one thing to another thing um but yeah, and there's routines. I think you get your own little rituals that you follow. Like I have my own little rituals in my head, which I go, okay, I'm gonna switch off from that and then do that without trying to think too far ahead. Right. So, yeah. oh, that's you brought up something really interesting and this is something I'm fascinated by. The, the concept of fun, you know, there are certain things when you're having fun, uh, when you're doing it like a roller coaster, it's, it's fun. But afterwards, you don't feel that joy. And there are other things like writing a thesis where while you're going through it, it's absolute misery. But when you look back on it, it's really fun. Yeah, yeah, it's a good description. Yeah, it's really weird. I mean, look, ultimately, even even when you're doing your thesis, there are parts which are excruciatingly bad, painful. But overall, you think about it, it's, it is a lot of fun. You're getting to, to do something you're really passionate about. You're getting to spend time on researching the one thing that you pick, you know what I mean? Like, you, you get, like, I don't, you think about the difference between an undergraduate and a postgraduate in, in research space. You know, when you're undergraduate, everybody else sets your agenda. You know, when you're in the postgraduate space, you set your own agenda you know and I think what happens yeah it gets tiring and there is almost like an inverse relationship between the the amount of detail you need to go to and the amount of fun or enthusiasm that you have <laughs> but in saying that you still like if you think about it you still kind of think about it and go, oh wow that's I'm doing something that I'm really passionate about and mm. and that's my one bit of advice to you know when people start thinking about PhD topics is pick something that you're interested in don't pick something that you think other people want you to do or you yeah. think is going to be good 
good or whatever. It just has to be what you feel like that 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 passion that you feel. And I think once you feel that, like once you you pick a topic area that you're fascinated by, I, it it doesn't feel like work, right? It right. feels just like you know, it's fun. Yeah, 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 it is. It's awesome. It's yeah. amazing. You know, it's such a privilege experience to be able to do what yeah. to do that so I, I totally get it i mean there are times for my thesis so i'd wake up four in the morning because the the equipment that was um that i had to use for my experiments was booked out throughout, throughout the whole day so i had to get there six and run experiments till 10 and that, what i would remember is like if this is if this wasn't something i enjoyed oh this would suck so bad. yeah yeah exactly right <laughs> like you get yeah. up in the morning you're crazy man. yeah i know like, who does that you i know, know. <laughs> well you know to dedicate any any significant period of your life to something yeah. you should really be passionate about it you know there should be a it's like an you know once you get that itch you know you start trying to, un, un, to, yeah. to try unpack what you're doing you know i think if it's, you don't have it i think if you don't have that passion if you don't have the obsession that's that's necessary you won't do the things that are required to achieve that success it's usually people who are there's a great book um, Mastery by Robert Greene um, I'm not sure if you read it but it's he talks about all these geniuses that we perceive them as geniuses in, in, our, in our past they're not so much like genetically gifted but more about they were really obsessed about what they were doing um, they really loved uh, like music or art and they yeah. did they in that love of, of what their of, of their art is what pushed them to do mm. everything necessary for them to achieve greatness and achieve you know this this uh, aura of uh, genius I suppose yeah look I think I mean look undoubtedly some people are, gen- are born geniuses but I think the majority of people in the world um, that are successful in, in whatever field they pursue there's 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 three things right one is I think timing like if you're going to do something that you 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 enter something at the right time then you, you know you know for example if you're if you're developing apps 10 years ago before before people owned iPhones and mm. there's not much use to it if you're trying to develop an app that everybody has now then what's the point of that so it's a bit one's about timing two is about the support structures that you have around you like mm. you know people that you can rely on and, and give you advice and three is just persistence you know it's just about you know like it's like every band that says to you you know they're an overnight success which took like 10 years to get there you know um the amount of you know i always always make a point of actually sharing the amount of rejections i get for my papers um because you know for every paper i've got published there's probably like a dozen rejections sitting there um for papers to be redrafted rewritten re re uh repitched you know um and it's just a matter of it is it's just a matter of just not not stopping and and it's part of that that part of that as i said running a marathon you just it's 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 all part of developing you know i mean Mac, malcolm gladwell talks about ten thousand hours as the magic amount of time you know it talks about bands practicing ten thousand hours before they become mm. r- amazing you know from the beatles to to Be- beethoven but and i think there's something in that about the amount of time you do the amount of times you practice something you know right. um you just get you get better and better and better at it and yeah. i think that's what that's the kind of I think resilience and uh, um, th- that you kind of need to slowly build, you know. Mm, definitely. Let let's go back to the beginning of your story because I <laughs> think I was watching some videos and uh, I didn't know this, but you were first in family. Yeah. Were you an immigrant or were you the ch- the child of an or the, the child of immigrant? Yeah, parents? no, child of immigrant parents. So yeah, so my parents migrated here in the sixties, um, but I was the first in family. Mum ironed for a living um, and was mostly a full time mum, and dad was a builder, like carried bricks. Um, so yeah, no one in my family 
anywhere really had gone to um, to to university. Um, there were some distant cousins somewhere in Greece, but mostly it was uh, I was the first one. So it was a really um, just incredibly foreign experience. Right. And you know, you look you look back now and you realise just how. Um, out of my depth I was like I didn't you know like all these people I was hanging out with they were going overseas to uh, to to you know for trips or getting the opportunities to do these things and I just never knew that I could actually apply and do it like it was such a foreign thing to me you know um, so yeah and that's one of the reasons why I'm so passionate about working with first in family students or getting the fact that students take a bit of time to adjust I'm not, my first couple of years my first two or three years at uni were an absolute disaster like I just kept on scraping through like literally like I'm talking about bare passes fails wow. um, you know my first I think my first I remember getting a 60 and thinking oh my god I've aced this subject you know <laughs> like it was literally that was it so it took me a few years to actually find my straps and it was only when I did postgraduate work that I really um, began to click into understanding like yeah finding that passion for for, for knowledge right so having uh, being the first what motivated you to get into university i mean you know my parents were educators so it was much easier for me to get into uni because it's all, like i have role models but as you said you lack those role models so what inspired you to get involved in uni yeah i mean look my parents you know like most immigrant parents wanted me to have a better life than what they did and and i think they saw university um as a pathway to that um but you know they were i mean you know like they grew up in war-torn greece and so they didn't exactly know what they wanted me to do at uni but mm. they kind of understood medicine law and accounting um and they're the three things that they kind of understood that we should do right and so they wanted me to do something around accounting most of the time and uh and so i started off um yeah, wasn't really sure, you know, what I wanted to do, and sort of um, first year sort of bumbled around, sort of did a bit of, bit of science, and then I ended up um, doing economics. Um, but yeah, but the motivation was just like uh, there was no real end goal in mind. Like there was just like, oh yeah, I want, I want, I'll go to uni because that's you know some friends are going to uni, and 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 I sort of just stumbled into it, you know. So mm. um, yeah, so there was not. Yeah, and like I said, the most thing was that parents just wanted me to have a better life than what they did. They right. didn't know they didn't know what that was or what it looked like, but it just was, you know. But they recognised education as a mechanism improve your situation to make your life better. Yeah, and that's and that's and that's something I suppose that I love about being an educator. That I think um, education remains the most potent. Um, social justice tool in the world you know and that's um, one one of the things I learned when I ended up working in human rights for a number of years I found that education was the way that you change change the world and that's why I ended up being an educator because it was just another mechanism for me to kind of help sh reshape the world you know my own little drop in the bucket to try and make the world a better place right. um, yeah and I think I think it remains the most potent social justice tool in the world. I think there's nothing like education to, to change people's opportunities and, and uh, yeah, a community's opportunities, not just mm. an individual person. That's, that's interesting you say that because I'm an immigrant as well. So I came here at the age of nine from Afghanistan. And uh, one of the reasons uh, why my parents came here was obviously to provide a better life and more opportunities for us. But education was instilled in me and my siblings uh, from a very young age. And in fact, when we were in Afghanistan, when, when we moved to Pakistan and over here, my mom would always repeat the same thing. Uh, where we are doesn't mean, uh, it, it doesn't mean necessarily that this is where you're going to be in 10 years. Mm -hmm. You have to 
learn, you have to build skills, you have to gain some education so that you can improve your life and, and use it almost as an escape from where we were previously. Um, so that's really fascinating. You, you said that you studied economics, but here you are the Dean of Graduate Research. What changed? So how did you go from economics to uh, 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 researching hope and, and uh, social justice. Yeah. Well, I, I, what happened was I, after I finished uni, I actually worked as an economic forecaster and I worked a lot in um, yeah, forecasting interest rates, just economic activity. And I, at the time, we used to provide, I worked for a team that used to provide advice to, you know, within the financial, it's a financial institution I worked for. Um, and then I did that for about nine years and I was really, I was quite successful at it, you know, um, but I also realised that it's probably not what I want to do with the rest of my life. So I took a year off traveling. And in that well, year... Sorry, just to interrupt. Why did you feel like it wasn't something you could do for the rest of your life? Well, I mean, I think it was... Um it wasn't fulfilling, you know, like it was, it was, at first it was great because I made some money and I got to party and I got to do all the things that, you know, I got to wear a suit, all the things that no one in my family could do. Right. Um, but then I thought about it and I thought it wasn't like at first it was great. Like I loved it. And then after a while I just was like, this isn't, I can't see what this is doing for society like what am i doing what difference is my life making like you know i mean i'll do i want to do this for the next 30 or 40 years and i couldn't there was nothing there that got me that made me maybe passionate about it um so yeah so i just decided to you know i'd sort of uh, the other thing is too it was a very uh it was a very hyper masculine culture like it was a very it was one of those cultures that um was all about like success it was all just about success it was all about climbing over bodies to get to the top you know it was a really brutal environment and i and i and after a while i just went i just don't want to do this anymore i don't want to be you know the person who climbs over the other person um and then have all these people climbing over me and you know it was it was literally like that and there were some really good people there but there was also some people that i i didn't like and and what ended up happening was i started mimicking some of the behavior which i found um, which I didn't like, you know, like I started becoming the person I didn't like. And so one day I, I like, yeah, there's a, there's a term I used to use, like, you know, at the time everyone was talking about, um, um, you know, um, uh, you know, um, um, snags, sensitive new age guys, you know, and I used to, I used to, you heard the term, I presume, have you heard that term? This is the first time I'm actually uh, hearing of that. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So everybody talk about snag, sensitive new age guys. And I, at the time, I used to describe myself as a, a chop, which is a chauvinistic, hedonistic, opportunistic prick, right? <laughs> so, so it was the, the so, so I, and I, I kind of woke up one day and I just went, I don't really like this person that I'm looking back in the mirror. And so I said, okay, I just need to reboot. Like I'd made some money. Um, I had enough savings. So I just sort of said, I'm going to just just let myself go and drift for a year so i just took a year off and traveled around the world um i just started off in new zealand and then made my way up to um south south america crossed the continent all the way up to canada um essentially mostly overland went over to europe made my way through parts of europe down into um, down through parts of asia into back to australia so to me took me a while took me eight to ten months to do that and it was there that I kind of really reflected on what I wanted to achieve in my life um, it was also there that I, I kind of was really confronted with some really brutal um, social justice issues you know, extreme levels of poverty um, you know and you know what I witnessed child labor and I witnessed you know kids who were like nine years old working in mines you know carrying 
carrying bricks for a living, you know, for like a dollar a day, you know, not even a dollar a day, less than that for that, some of these kids. And a lot of those guys, a lot of those kids in these mines, they'll never, they'll never, um, they won't live past like in their 20s because their lungs never properly develop because they spend all this time breathing in really bad dust. And to be honest with you, you know, to get really brutal, there was two, two discoveries I've had. One was the economic system that I supported and I backed and I made money from that was built on the lives of children like this mm. and the second thing was um the the one of the mines i visited um produced um metals for for car manufacturers and at the time i was in a specific a specific someone said to me a specific european car manufacturer i'm not sure if it's true but at the time that was a car i had owned and i figured that the real cost of the car was not the fifty thousand dollars i'd paid for it but the lives of these these children mm. so i kind of took i, I kind of took responsibility for it and i kind of went okay i can't go back to work in a system that lives off this kind of environment that 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 makes profit off the lives of people and um and so yeah so i kind of just went i'm gonna do I'm gonna, I'm gonna do something different i didn't know what i wanted to do mm. um but then i came back to australia i just went i wanted to reboot my life and uh that's when i got into areas of social justice economic justice human rights work environmental work and, and so on and ended up working with a, a number of um human rights based organizations in australia and internationally and yeah and this this is before your postgrad work yeah i done i done some postgrad work in finance before that while i was working in, in the finance um industry but then when i came back and i was i was sort of working i then started getting into i did a pa i did a master's i started a master's i should say in um in environmental policy mm -hmm. um and then transferred that into a uh, phd and did my end up doing my PhD mostly in the area of philosophy. Right. Um, so when you came back and you had because what I think in a society that we live in right now, it's it's easy to ignore um, uh, ignore how like Western culture, Western society is built. It's built on the backs of third world countries mm. uh, on essentially slavery because it's pretty much slavery you put you're giving you these people are stuck in a terrible situation where they, they have no means of getting out and you're exploiting that giving them 10 cents 20 cents a day mm. you know like you have foxconn reports where people jump off buildings mm. because their lives are so terrible and then the company goes to address that they put nets up so people don't die on their watch so it's easy as human beings for us to ignore these issues that are happening in the world and you are someone who stared at it directly and and used it as a use it to change you um i'm curious what was your ultimate goal at that point when you came back what did you want to accomplish yeah look i, I suppose yeah there's two things first to, to respond to that part about about you know ignoring it look i think part partially it's ignoring but partially it's also overwhelming you know like how do we as individuals respond to the you know to the migration crisis in syria you know like we look at that as individuals and we're like we just become overwhelmed you know we experience a, you know like oh even if you want to do something about it most of us are like oh my god what do i do about it you know and so i think part of it was going well i can't i can't I can't bring peace to Syria. I can't end child labor. But these are the little things I can do to be part of a broader solution. Um, and so that was that was my kind of attitude. And so when I when I came back, I that was the thing that I was really interested became really interested in was okay. I'm one person, and I'm not gonna you know I'm not I'm not 
I'm not Martin Luther King. I'm not this person who's going to change the world like by by storm, you know, and have these you know, thousands of supporters. I'm more like I'm thinking, okay, well, but what can I do as a as a as a in little steps to kind of create an environment that will help other people create an environment that will create more environment. You know what I mean? Like mm. so, that was how I always saw my 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 goal was to be be part of something that that helped transform the way that we see the world. And that's why, in the end, I ended up being so attracted to education because I think that, um, you know, education should not just be about highlighting the challenges but offering solutions or working with people to find some solutions, you know. And that's that's a part that I really like is challenging um, challenging people to say, well, let's let's see what we can do about it. What can we do about it? Where are the what is it that we we as individuals and as communities can can respond to? You know, I think that's really mm. powerful in our own way. Like, it's not not everyone not everyone can not everyone's going to do the same thing. You know what I mean? Um, you know, sometimes you you you're part of a, a part of you know you stand on the shoulder of giants and you help. You know, you work in a lab and you find a solution to to to, to dealing with you know uh, you know like you know. Ross River virus, you know, on one, one end or, 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 you know, or malaria or on the other end, you know. And another time it's about, you know, building anti-racism campaigns. You know, all those things are, are valid um, in in responding to the challenges that, that we face, you know. Um, right. Responding to Islamophobia, responding to, you know, to, to homelessness, um, responding in both solutions and in policy work and in attitudes and, and, and things like that. Um, so they're the things that I think there's lots of uh there's lots of things we can do and that was what i became really passionate about mm, that's interesting you mentioned education you know when most people when i used to think about education it was just about teaching content um do you have a different perspective on education and its role in society yeah look content i mean we live in a world where content is everywhere you know and so you know 20 30 years ago if you wanted to know something you came to uni um universities con- controlled content con- content is everywhere now um we i think as universities need to be any education institution it's not just about content it's about empowerment it's about promoting a sense of agency so it's not only about learning the content it's about how do i how do i use that content how do i apply that content how do i make that content relevant Mm. Um, so yeah, so I think that's only half the job, or a third of the job, of what we need to do. Uh, yeah, I mean, yeah, I mean, half the times the content available on on you know on YouTube is probably better than the content you actually get received at university <laughs> in its in its in its quality, right? Yeah. In its in its uh, production values, so to right. speak. But uh, yeah, so I think it's um yeah, so I think the universities have to do a lot more than just content. They need to sort of showcase how do you apply that? How do we how do we create an environment where people look at the challenges and say, okay, I'm going to use the, the stuff that I know and the stuff I'm passionate about to confront the challenges, you know. I mean, you know, everything at the moment, we're, we're, we're living in a time where, you know, we, we sort of people, the world is becoming anti-science. You know, all of a sudden, you know, we, you know, things like knowledge and science and intellectualism is, is viewed with suspicion. You know, how did it happen? What do we do about it? Mm-hmm. Um, and every one of us, be it as every researcher involved in this university and every university around has a has a duty to respond to that um otherwise we're just going to go backwards you know you can yeah yeah no i I totally agree and and the rise of this anti-intellectualism is is something that's really concerning 
for for scientists because if you do get the science wrong and not not to discount the importance of philosophy and the importance of you know people thinking about ethics and morals and designing policies but you know we see things through our filter unfortunately like everyone else does but we're concerned because it, not only can you destroy humanity, but you can destroy the whole world. So that's definitely an issue that we're all concerned about. But one thing I'm curious about, and we've had this conversation before, I think one of the first few times that I met you, I asked you what you did your PhD on, and you told me hope. And mm. as a hard scientist, you know, we're used to concrete things like, here's a cell, how does a cell divide? You know, let's look at DNA synthesis. So concrete things, whereas having this conversation with you, I'm like, oh, wow, that's so abstract yeah like can you tell us like how do you like invest or research hope in what context yeah look I, you know i think it's it's really interesting um i mean first of all just just going back to the the sciences i mean you know it's um it's really interesting because we we live in a time as well where where facts just don't aren't enough you know what i mean like we live in a you know we live in a world where you know i mean if, if facts were enough then we would have responded to climate change 30 years ago we know in the 40 years ago in the 1970s there was enough evidence to indicate you know anthropocentric um you know warming of the globe you know that will have an impact you know and if it was just facts we'd do it so i think this is the the part that's 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 really important between the different disciplines is to kind of look at not only communication but understanding um you know a good policy environment to allow you know that science to be applied properly um, to um, a, a communications tool to understanding cultures why people resist things. You know, mm. um, you know one of the big mistakes I think the the sort of the the environmental movement has made and science scientists have made have been to discount the the kind of the um, the importance of things like minds in 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 national identity and and people's um, the way that people see themselves and the way that uh, that that nations um, form you know what I mean like we're we're a we're a nation that's that's seen as conquering the environment you know and so when we sit there and say oh no it's all wrong you can't have you can't have coal mines anymore people you know respond to that so I think there's there is the, the it's multi-dimensional and that's how we need to, to start start looking at things. You know, going going to hope. I mean, what I what I was always interested in is what I'm really interested in is culture. You know, how everyday cultures uh, form and how they are shaped. You know, and when I talk about culture, I don't mean high culture like art and music. I mean, I'm fascinated in that as well. But I'm talking about everyday behaviours and how um, and how everyday um, you know things just happen and how uh, how you bring about changing attitudes and things like that. So you know, um, so what what happened was. Um, the way that I researched hope and what I where my research came from was while I was working for one of the human rights based organizations because first and foremost I'm an economist right so in a way I'm a social scientist you know looking at similar to you in a way but looking at really kind of looking at concrete facts and 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 uh and really concrete but um processes that lead to change you know incentives and and having that kind of those structures there but while I was working in um while I was working in um in a place in Papua New Guinea that was had been in, in conflict for a number of years, um, I was I was looking at I was I was sitting in a room running a workshop and it's it's really hard to just imagine this. I mean, imagine being in a room about fifty or sixty people, mostly men, not all, not strictly, but mostly men, and you kind of it's like a four day workshop. And I was doing some stuff. I was working with another organisation at the time, and we're looking at rebuilding the the economy after the, it collapsed, right? Um, because 
economies collapsed during conflict, right? And this was like about, it was an Asian Development Bank funded project and it was about rebu- helping rebuild the economy. So I was kind of having these discussions around how do you rebuild an economy um, that had collapsed following the war. And, um, and it just, it dawned on me about halfway through the first morning that the people in the room were all ex-combatants and um, from different sides of the war. And so what had happened in, in, in a period of, and the war had gone on for 10 years. So in a period of 10 years, these guys, and I use the word guys loosely, both men and women, but these, these, these folk, they had um, gone from being neighbours and just living their lives in peace to uh, taking up arms against each other, shooting at each other, killing each other, committing uh, human rights atrocities, um, or, you know, even if they didn't do them correct, uh, directly, indirectly, um, to, um, to then laying down the arms and working together. Right? Mm. How do you do that? Like, how's that? How's that happen? How do you go from from just getting along with your neighbour to shooting at your neighbour, then to working with your neighbour? And so I was just like, that's seriously intense, right? So two things dawned on me when, when I, well, two things I thought when I discovered that. One is maybe I should stop making fun of these guys and being a smart ass because I realised they're all ex-combatants and they probably, yeah. Yeah, I probably should be a little bit politer in some of the some of the, the way I was carrying on. Um, but the the second thing is, wow, what what makes what makes you um, give up arms and decide to work with your enemy to kind of solve a problem? And so I just started chatting to them, you know, first informally, and then I came back and and then cleared sort of ethical ethics to sort of talk to them more formally. Um, and what they ended up talking about was they they could start working towards um, working together when they thought. Uh, when they thought that a better world was possible, when they actually started thinking that we can we can reshape the world to make a world a better place, essentially, like through my actions, we can help end this conflict. I can help rebuild the future for my for my children and my family, and for their children and the people around me. And so, this idea that that someone could not only envisage a better world, but also feel that they had a role in a better world, mm-hmm. um, gave me this idea that people that that's what hope is you know and that's that's what i termed it so for me hope is not a passive verb it's not you just sit at home and go i'm just going to be i'm just going to be hopeful i'm just going to hope that the world gets better and we're going to hold hands and and sing no hope for me is an active and it's an active it's an active word it's a word that through my actions through my 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 very actions and my and the way i behave and the people i connect with and what i do my sense of agency what i do there actually can help alter the future can help reshape my world and that for me is hope so the belief of of combination of being able to envisage a better world but then also believing that you have a a set of tools you know Mm. yourself um to to make that better world come around and that's and i had no word for it and the word i settled on um was um inspired by a couple of um theorists or philosophers who use the word hope in a who started using the word hope in that way and that's that's how I, i did it so i was interested in about yeah, in, in how that happened. And so then I took that around and started interviewing people that were involved in all sorts of work, you know, social justice work, um, work in, uh, you know, I, I met these scientists who were working in parts of, um, in parts of Mexico, 
to solve really basic um to solve really basic hygiene diseases you know mm -hmm. and you know what was motivating them not earning you know two hundred thousand dollars in the private practice what was motivating them to to work you know for almost a pet pittance in in sort of remote parts of mexico well their sense that they wanted to see a better world and, and that their actions could make that happen and so it was that's that's where that's where hope comes from you know that's what that's right. what i yeah that, that is fascinating what happens when when people lose that hope? Yeah, well, this is a really cool. This is a really important statement, right? That's a really important question. So, uh, the the opposite of loss of hope, it's um, it's not. It's actually much deeper than um, than just uh, I don't care. Like I think the first phase, I don't care, right? Whatever, or I only care for myself. I don't care about anyone else but then it becomes um almost like a sense of dread you know where you don't see any choice anything anything positive you know um and i think um that's kind of where we become that's the risk that the world continually faces you know i think it's a it's a really it's a really um it's a really interesting dance between mm. um between caring and not caring, between having hope and having a sense of dread or, or total with despair. Yeah. yeah, I think, um, and despair is a really powerful word. It's a, uh, yeah, and I think once we, if you hit despair, then, you know, w w what's the point, you know, like what's the point? And that's the challenge I think that we face in a world where those problems that we talked about earlier, mm. you know, climate change, conflict, uh, refugee crises, when they seem overwhelming, despair is, is, is sometimes easier than hope, and that's what we need to fight yeah. against. That's interesting. So in all these situations or examples that you raised, like climate change and this refugee crisis, um, so there appears to be a lack of hope. Is there any way, like looking at your research that you did in your PhD, did you find any sort of solutions where you could perhaps introduce a sprinkle of hope in a situation? Yeah, look, I, look, I mean, I think there's... We, what we got to remember, look, I think it's easy for us to concentrate on the despair and it's easy for us to forget the levels of hope. You know, it's easy to forget the, you know, the people that, the, 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 the hundreds of thousands of Australians who, who donate money, you know, mm. to all sorts of charities, the people who, um, who uh, you know, who take part in marches and vigils, the people who, um, who you know, support organisations like Get Up, um, you know, like it's, it's sort of everywhere, you know, and in, in, there's a really interesting research done on um, uh, describing what they called everyday multiculturalisms. You know, we hear about everyday racism, mm. but we also, we don't hear about everyday multiculturalisms where people do things like neighbours sharing stuff over the fence, um, people helping people out who are struggling to, to find the right address you know like mm. there's all these moments of hope that we're continuously seeing and um and that's that's what we need to remember you know i mean the way that the way it's really interesting the way you know when when the sort of the sydney siege happened you know a few years ago when they were talking about you know women in hijabs being scared to to ride on buses and and then the, the I ride, i'll ride with you campaign mm, emerged you know it emerged spontaneously and it emerged all over the place you know and we forget that they're the moments that help define who we are and so this is a i think a really complex interplay that we're seeing and so we just we find moments of hope everywhere you know um we're just i think we're instinctively trained not to see them we're instinctively almost like instinctively look at the the the, the news yeah the negative news you know yeah. um and maybe that plays up to something else but yeah i think there's lots of sprinkles of hope yeah. um
yeah i totally agree with you i think as human beings we've probably evolved um to pay attention to negative news because that's what our survival was dependent on so if you saw a tiger if you didn't freak out compared to seeing an other antelope like the tiger is more important for your survival that's the time to that's the time to freak out yeah 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 yeah. what i'm curious about is um Looking at the world, do you think there's more hope or more despair? Uh, well, look, you know, I mean, that's a that's a, that's a that's a question, isn't it? Really? Look, I actually think we can only function in a world of hope. You know, we we, we are five million people living in a city, um, crammed in the city that is bursting at the seams with crappy public transport and crappy roads. And you know, our default position is to just get along. You know, that tells us something about the hope in the world right like right. you know you know what i mean like and you know i think um it's it's easy to forget how miraculous that is you know it's just amazing you think about this you know you think about the diversity in cultures and and languages and and tastes that uh, that permeate this city alone let alone paris or london or you know or all you know thousands of cities around the world mm. we do all right you, you know like yeah. not you know do we get it do we have it perfect no do we are there places in the world where despair exists and you know for me you know at the moment places like syria and and iraq are obviously places where despair dominates but um but you know as a society like we, we're doing pretty well you know yeah. and um i think we it's it's easy to forget those things yeah. um and yeah do we do we do we get it wrong sometimes can we do better are there people in the world that that, that benefit from from stoking fears of despair or moments of despair yeah of course but there are also i think many people in the world who overcome that and and move forward so yeah. Yeah. I, I totally agree with you i was having this conversation with my friend um and uh, he's more of a conspiracy theorist so he's saying the world is coming to an end and i'm like dude the world has never been safer like we have like the amount of people that probably die a thousand years due to uh, disease war i mean if you lived in a village let's say a thousand years ago you'd you'd constantly worry about hordes of people rushing into your village and killing you taking your money and your wife children uh, and completely ruining your day and your life <laughs> yeah. you don't have to worry about that yeah now. well look and, and look and you're right and i think we you know we forget the miracle of people living to 80 you know like yeah. you know i mean god how how you know when someone lives to 80 now it's just you know like that's an average lifespan you know like that's that's amazing you know like you you know like the ancient greeks they had the uh i think it was the spartans they used to have the 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 council of the council of elders was anyone over 30 essentially right and you know and so you know so that's because you know a it's pretty i think it was 30 or 40 or something like that but it was a pretty young age you know and and uh you know when you're 30 these days you you barely see yourself as having left your your youth right (laughs) um so uh, yeah so i think yeah we do forget those things uh, and i think you know i look around and i'm surrounded by you know students and uh who are doing amazing things and um and i that that's, gives me hope you know that gives mm. me amazing hope and some some of the students um and they could be really small micro things that they're doing or they could be you know bigger challenges that they take on um and so yeah i think it's a, it is a world full of hope i mm. don't and i think it's it's easy to forget that you know yeah. in the, in all these moments of bad news and and crisis um but i i think that's one of the things that we need to keep on remembering yeah. you know and i, I and I, I think um 
I think the world is more hopeful because I think we get along more. People trust each other more. And I think that's an important thing. Um, do, do you think, like, just comparing contemporary society to, let's say, a thousand years ago, how important has trust been? In yeah. Well, trust is another one of my research areas. Oh, really? I didn't know if you knew that, but uh, if you just stumbled upon it. Look, look, in our contemporary society, the whole society is based on trust, right? Like, you think about it. There's nothing that you do where you don't rely on trust. Like, you, you don't, I mean, I presume you're like me, you, you know very little about how a car works, but you rely, you trust the person that built it, you trust the mechanic that fixed it. Um, we don't, we didn't build this building that we're sitting in, we trust the person that built it. Mm-hmm. You think about a thousand years ago, the chances are you, you built your own building, you, you put your own horse and cart together, you know, you did most of those things. So increasingly our society is based simply on trust. You know, you trust the stranger on the train to just act like a stranger. You know, I mean, that's what we do. And so our whole society is totally based on, on trust. Um, and this is the challenge. I think this is gets to the root of where um, we, we can't let terrorism win, you know, because what terrorists really aim to do is undermine that trust that we have, where you begin to, to not trust someone based on the colour of their skin or the religious, um, the religious emblem that they wear um, or the clothes that they wear or whatever it is. Um, that's, where, that's where trust can be undermined, you know. But generally, I think, um, you know, trust is what makes our society function and I think and this is where again I think the risk of anti-intellectualism is if we start um, not trusting the people who are there to make the world a better place you know people that are there to make to make the food you know richer in vitamins and and more plentiful and more bountiful um, if we don't trust those people then um, we, we're in some serious problems and that's where you want to where again I'm such a passionate science communicator where I think we need to keep on convincing the world that the work that we're doing as scientists and social scientists is so fundamentally important because mm. our whole world relies on those messages on, on building those levels of trust mm. Definitely. I totally agree with you. Um, I mean, I was thinking about this when I was going to China last time. I'm like, man, I'm putting a lot of trust in this pilot's hands. Yeah, yeah. The p- p- look, a pilot is the ultimate example. Yeah. You know, like I sit on the plane and I watch the plane take off. And every time I, I, I do a lot of flying, like I probably fly once every couple, two or three weeks. And every time a plane takes off, I'm just in awe of the miracle of flight. Like, man, you think about it. It's a bloody metal tube, right? And it's right. and it's hurling through the air at like, you know, thousands of thousands of kilometers an hour and you're like wow we're flying you know this is amazing and yeah. i'm sitting here in a room full of strangers everyone just generally watching tv and pretending it's normal it's not normal people it's yeah. not normal <laughs> no, it's, it's, it's it's awesome it's amazing but really you know like it's not a normal thing to do you know and if you think about i mean oh wow you know you think about it in that way wow what an amazing experience yeah. and so yeah and look and all that is based on trust mm. all of it is based on trust and i think it's uh again one of those areas that i, th- I think is we need to kind of understand um to understand when we lose trust what we need to do to kind of to, to rebuild it mm, definitely i want to change gears a little bit um over here because we spoke with uh and this will only take another eight minutes okay yeah, yeah five yeah. minutes yeah, yeah. Uh, we spoke to meow uh, um, have you heard of that guy? He put the opal chip in his hand. Um, he's got his own biohacking lab in yep. the city. So we had him on uh, last week. And he was talking about how universities um, need to fund technologists. Uh, and, and one way to facilitate um, universities doing more relevant research is to remove things like the IP, so intellectual property, to, so that there's this incentive for students to, to uh, really push their research and, and 
um, make something innovative because he's he was arguing that it's not papers that change the world but technologies um, so I just want to get what your take was that yeah look I think it's a I think it's a valid a, a valid argument I mean I, I think one of the things that I've been proud of in this university is we've over the last five years flipped the IP um, default it, and it forces students ahead of unless specifically stated otherwise and I think that's really really important that the university took that step um, and it was a step that I, when I was part of those discussions initially that I was really proud of that we, we were part that that happened um, look I think yeah look I think part of part of the challenge and this is goes back to this whole philosophy I've had um, around education which is around this idea of what we should be teaching our students you know and I think we should be encouraging our students to be brave and bold and to make mistakes um, and so you know over the last couple of years I've developed this idea of mistakeability which is letting people make mistakes you know you think about universities uh, most of the time you make a mistake you fail right we shouldn't be doing that we should be rewarding in a way failure you know we should be encouraging people to 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 focus on process not just on what they're doing not just the the outcome and getting things wrong a hundred times before you get it right is is a perfectly natural way of, of, of people developing stuff and so yeah I think there's a massive room um, to change it and we're seeing small changes but I think yeah I think universities need to push beyond the the papers and the you know and, and start looking at things like well what does what you know how do we encourage that more kind of yeah, that people being bold and making those and pursuing these dreams and, and how do we assess that? Well, you know, maybe we just we, we stop requiring certain things at certain points and start looking at other ways to assess people's engagement. Um, and so I think it's definitely possible and I think that's where we really do need to evolve, creating an environment where people are bold with their, with their research and, mm. and rewarding error, rewarding people making mistakes, you know. Um, I, I, used to, I ran this subject once. Um, we ran with um, uh, PwC a few years ago, which was a huge success. And what we did, we assessed the students not on what they achieved but the process that they followed. So what we did at the end, we just got together um, we had students working in teams, and what they submitted was their was their project, their weekly project plans about how they work together, um, and it had nothing to do with the end, end the end outcome, you know. And the end outcome, in a way, was never going to be successful because the end out, the aim of the end was to try and get people to to launch a successful business. Now, mm. it's almost impossible to launch a successful business in twelve weeks, um, especially when you're starting from scratch. But we didn't care about the outcome; we cared about the process they followed and I think they're the kind of things they're the kind of really important curriculum um, innovations that I think we need to drive yeah cool um, thank you so much for your time James I know you're a rock star you got many <laughs> things to do so we got to be appreciative of your time I, I appreciate you saying I'm a rock star you are I'm not but I, I really like I, I do I do like that term but uh, I was you. watching actually I just to be uh, frank with you last night I was watching you dancing with your with your uh, students on a video, I'm like, wow, James is a rock star. Like, legitimately, <laughs> you can't deny that now. Yeah, you know? well, a bit of dancing, I think, is good. You know, yeah, get, get a, bit of, a bit of rhythm is good to get everyone <laughs> thinking. Again, it, it challenges and juices of the brain, right? You get people to think differently. Yeah. Uh, just, just one point, you know, one time... Um, one of the things I always say, like one of my philosophies is that we need to be what we want our students to be, right? So I can't expect you to be innovative if I don't, if I don't push innovation. I can't expect you to be brave if I don't take risks i can't expect you to engage and communicate your research unless i'm willing to do the same thing right mm. and so one of the times when we were, i was working on one of the programs here one of the innovations around curriculum i made all the lecturers that were involved with it and that included you know 
people that were working, you know, scientists as well as, you know, we had um, uh, Andrew Francis, who's, a, you know, the head of the mathematics and, and um, Nick Todhill, who is, you know, an astrophysicist. Well, you know, I said to them, we, 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 I took them all to the art gallery, um, to the Modern Museum of Contemporary Art and made them go through one of those creativity exercises that they, we put students through, right? Right. And I said, we can't expect our students to be what we need to lead by example, essentially. Right. And so, um, yeah, and so that's always been, you know, I have to mirror what I want, what I expect from you. Um, and so unless I do that, then you're not going to, you know, it's not going like to, I'm talking, I'm not actually doing, and I think that's really important. Yeah, I, I totally agree with you. Um, that's a beautiful way of creating change. Thank you so much for your time, James. Thanks, guys. Thanks a lot. starting this goddamn podcast bro uh you've already started you know? <laughs> oh, yeah yeah i uh, did a uh and then he did just after it oh did i yeah oh man i i just i spent both uh on the same episode i should have kept it i had no idea that like australian people said goodbye to each other were saying yeah i think only if you're like living in the Northern Territory or if you're Crocodile Dundee, though. <laughs> no, dude, Jack. Jack in our research group. Oh, Apparently yeah, in yeah. Penrith, the street that he lived on, they were very keen on... <laughs> so for those who are actually not brought up in Australia, a different country, and listening to this and thinking, man, that's a ridiculous way of saying goodbye... I agree with you. <laughs> I'm going to judge the, this cultural practice that Caucasian Australians... I wonder where it comes from. We should look that up. I want to look that up now. Uluru. Where does that, where does that come Uluru. from? They probably saw Uluru. Uluru. What's an Uluru? Uluru, the rock. Oh, is it really? Shit. <laughs> Dude, if I did the citizenship, citizenship test, I would be kicked out. Yeah? Are no, you I, a citizen? I am. Yeah. So you, you can vote in the uh, plebiscite to... For gay marriage, then? Oh, yeah, that stuff that was going on, I saw on the thing. Dude, I don't even know why gay people want marriage, man. You guys have a good escape that <laughs> shit right now, man. Us dudes, we're trapped in this situation where if you don't get married to a to to the woman, she gets like she. For me as a dude, I think marriage is so useless because I think <laughs> you financially entangle yourself with a person, and then if it doesn't work out, not only um, do they take half your money but they they can take things like there was a great boxer who lost his belt because his ex-wife wanted to take his boxing belt what how just, does that work dude because it was just in the deal like she, it was, it's just so crazy when i hear stories like that of, it seems of, very strange well like so if i'm like uh, a gold medal winning olympian dude your wife will take it no, not your wife. I mean, if you're married yeah, and yeah, things don't, don't work out. I mean, if you, you are married, but if things don't work out and she goes, I want half of everything. And yeah. that half of everything includes your belts. It may include world titles that you may have won. Who gives a shit? She mm. wants it, bro. So that in itself... I see the actual belt, but yeah, you still... Are, yeah, I guess. Well, well, she's not going to chop it in half. You don't want it chopped uh, yeah. in half. She keeps it, right? And and so that that's the scary thing about marriage. You, you, there isn't this ease of just removing yourself from the situation. I mean, there's, there's great examples of people paying like alimony. There's a great example I was mm. listening to on, on the Jorigan experience. There was a chick who got divorced from her husband 
and is essentially dating another dude and lives in a mansion, she can't get married again because then the money from her ex-husband would stop coming in. And so what she's doing is she's just dating dudes who come over her house and then when her husband comes over to like catch her in the act that her her like boyfriends just literally move out for a day and then when the hus- ex-husband's gone they come back in bro essentially this guy is big i've seen so much of that it's different in the america than here i think though isn't i it? think i think it, it, it's all mm, pretty much they the have thing. like what was it alimony i don't really understand how that works it's just child support uh, over here yeah we have child I, support i, I have it over there too but alimony is different i think isn't it Alimony. We probably shouldn't even go into it because, no, no, to be al- honest, I have no idea what, I'm, <laughs> what I'm talking about. When alimony is alimony is the the money you pay you pay her for for screwing up in the first place by getting married to her. <laughs> yeah, but we don't have that in Australia. I don't think. I not, I'm pretty sure we don't have alimony. So, I mean, for like 2017, yeah. we live in a time where both men and women are ostensibly equal, mm. right? So. If 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 a if a woman brings in like twenty million dollars into the relationship, just leave with what you came from or came with. So if some dude came in with like fifty thousand uh, yeah. dollars salary, do you know what I mean? But we do have stuff like what do they call it? Where you have to people who have a lot of money and then go into react or uh, into relationships sometimes get yeah, they get a prenup. Bro. Prenup, that's yeah. the word I'm but, looking but, for. But, uh, look, but that's an, an agreement before you get married. Yeah, yeah. But there's no prenup in normal marriage. But if there, oh yeah, well, you I have think to there ask can for be. it. And if, then when you, you think if you're coming it, into a relationship with uh, lots of money, lots of money, then that Why would, don't you, you love might want to protect that. You might want to protect that. You know, yeah, to yeah. say that you want to spend the rest of your life. Why do you have a plan B? You just want to leave me once you're sick of me. Yeah. Like yeah, a prenup is useful in that sense. Yeah. But yeah, so back to your original question are you are you for gay gay people getting married i'm for whatever they want to do no i asked you if you're gonna vote you yeah i made sure making sure you're a citizen so you can vote oh yeah vote for it because if you have to be a citizen to vote in that yeah i'm so like anyway it's actually an all right segue into james because i guess (laughs) he was talking largely about uh hope hope and social justice and things like this so and hope is what you fits into that hope is what you lose see we started randomly and we still had a good segue it just all like worked out perfectly i was gonna say hope is what you lose uh, along with half your shit when the marriage doesn't work (laughs) out Hey, this uh, isn't to bag out anyone who's married. If you want to be married and you're with the right person, you're happy, um, good on you, you know. But for most dudes, uh, at least the ones that I talk to and I've spoken to many people, uh, dudes aren't too keen on marriage. It's usually the, the female uh, counterpart that is a big fan. And I completely understand. They want to, you know, they want, this is their big day, you know. Um, hmm. It, it means a lot to them. It means a lot in terms of their family, perhaps culture, all that comes into play. For dudes, like, for me personally, I'm like, eh, eh. It's a party. It, it's a party, but also it, it avoids a lot of headache that might come afterwards. But nonetheless, let's talk about James Avanatakis. So it was very cool of him to actually be on the podcast because I know he's super busy. Yeah. Um, I wanted to talk about, like, his his obsession and his love of research as a career as well. Cause I think that was like, obviously um, James is the, is the Dean of the graduate research school. So research is really his thing, you know, he's the Dean of that school. And it's really good to see um, that he's obsessed with research. Cause I really like research as well. I almost, that's why I think when I realized halfway through my undergrad that I wanted to actually get into research, it was because I realized that, research is basically an opportunity to continually learn stuff 
You know, you know, you almost can be a professional student and continually learn. Yeah, and what's cool is that he went from someone who struggled at uni in his undergrad to really excelling in in postgrad. Mm. Um, but what's fascinating is how he got into research and researching hope specifically. Right, uh, he went on this. So he was in the financial sector working there, and then he just looked in the mirror and said, oh, this is not me. This is not who I thought I'd become. Yeah. I can be better than this. So he went on some, uh, on, on a journey, essentially traveling the world. Uh, yeah, a literal journey. Yeah, yeah. a literal trip. Um, and he just saw some horrendous shit that he thought was, wow, that's, that's terrible. And it's interesting that he saw a, I think it was a landmine where they were mining mm. um, stuff for batteries for a... Uh, for a European company that he was uh, for a car company, I yeah, think for it was, car wasn't company, it? Yeah. yeah, yeah. And he thought that th- there was the rumors, the rumors that that's what was happening, but he wasn't sure. But he was driving, so I wonder why he was driving. Probably a Merc or a Beamer. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but when I think, yeah, when you see that and you realize that that's like you're complicit then in that as well, aren't oh, you? Yeah, yeah, yeah. If you're buying those products and and yeah. in that, uh, then you're kind of complicit in the pain that these children are having and uh, that must be a really hard realization and Dude, you know, this reminds me of my friend matthew silverman if you're listening uh he wrote he he did a um he, he's doing philosophy but his thesis was the moral obligation so he was arguing that if you live in a country where racism exists and that white people have this privilege because they don't uh, they don't experience that racism everyone is morally responsible to make that um, that society so that everyone experiences the same sort of privilege and it's interesting because he said that because you you experience the benefits of that society you have a moral obligation to ensure that everybody else experiences that benefit yeah yeah and so when you apply that to james's situation i think um for him he actually saw it you know so that that obligation came face to face to it face to face to it, and that obligation was really apparent and for many of us we don't get an opportunity to see um some of the terrible things that get that gets yeah, done. it's hard because it's like that distance you have, isn't it? It's like when you have this distance from the problem, it's kind of easy to ignore it or to ignore the the part that your contribution to the problem. Yeah, for sure, and and you don't see what the what the problem is. You don't appreciate it because you're so, as you said, you're so distant. But it's cool to see that he used that moment uh, as as a transformative moment for him um, to change the course of his life and to to uh, make a positive contribution to to ensure that um that people uh, to ensure that social justice actually occurs yeah so he's using his i guess research uh well at that time he didn't know what he wanted to do yeah yeah you know? but, but, it's, but i'm just saying it's nice now looking back he's kind of using the research to like broaden people's minds and get people encouraged about learning and and that's a way that like his research is almost creating social justice in a way, I yeah. guess. And, and he also said that education is a tool for, for social justice. And in fact, when he came back... So what, yeah, so what do you think he means by that? Or go and tell the story first. But yeah. um, So when he came back, you know, uh, he saw this injustice in the world. And th- what I think it, it means... Um, so you could be a beggar, you could be a poor person, you could be a refugee and immigrant. Um, I wasn't a beggar or a poor person per se, but I was a refugee and immigrant. And I was in a situation where um, 
so so uh, where I utilized education to rise above my situation. So this is something that my parents have always instilled in me and my siblings that education is the key to success. Mm. No matter how like what bad luck you have, if you can get to a situation where you're learning and you're building skills, you can use that to to improve your life and, and to change your life. So I th- I think he meant it in that but what do you think? Yeah, no, I, I, I yeah, I think I kind of agree with that because in a sense um a lot of times I heard this as well from from a lot of good thinkers that poverty comes from from this lack of education, you know? Where you look at these like if you can educate the underprivileged in society, yeah, and they get better jobs and they can better like care for themselves and and things like this. So I heard it a lot specifically in context of women that if you go to um, developing nations, if you educate the women in those nations, mm. then they can control their own reproduction and things mm. like this. They can get better jobs mm. and the wealth of the whole society actually increases. To your point, actually, I was listening to a podcast. But it's w- interesting that like education is the vehicle for that. This is exactly yeah. what I was trying to get to. Yeah, this yeah. this Indian. I think it was like an engineer or a doctor, some crazy cool dude. He decided, he goes, I'm going to make a program where we can change the world, particularly third world countries like parts of Africa. And so what he did, he said that if we train men, then what men tend to do is they leave everything and they go to a different country and make a better life for themselves. And so instead, they started training women. And so these women were essentially, I think they were transported to India and they went through engineering school for about, I don't know, six months or whatever. They were fully trained. And then because women have... You know, uh, um, they they have they have children. They have to take care of their families. They have responsibilities. Uh, they are more caring and more invested at times than men are. And so, these women that were empowered with with uh, the skills and the, the education, yeah. the education would go back to their own villages and start building solar panels, start like developing wells and like start solving issues. In fact, they did this program with an Afghani. Uh, Afghani girl from a, 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 a um, from the countryside, some some village or some town, and the men were all against it. And she said that you know she really wanted to do it, but she was unsure as well. But after she went and uh, she did the she did the program, and she came back yeah. and she started solving the issues. Um, when the men were having a meeting, they invited her to get her opinions on things. Yeah. So again, it, it shows that you can get social justice um, in that way. Yeah. But also, I think education, you can teach social justice. Yeah, true. You true. know, so the principles of social justice, why we need to have it, uh, why yeah. it's important. You don't want to live in a world where people are being oppressed. That's a shit world yeah. to live because you could be born as that person and then you'd be like, man, this world sucks. But it's a nice little turnaround that James has, has done now because by recognizing that education is a means for social justice and kind of taking that fact with the fact that being a researcher is about almost just educating yourself more and more. It's learning process, research. Yeah. The job research is almost a job of like doing continual learning. So it's kind of great to see that he's now taking this lead in the graduate research school of inspiring other people to be researchers, other people to be learners and continually learn. It's a nice kind of like circle. Yeah, definitely. Um, Let's talk about, he said something very fascinating. He said that hope is not a passive word. Yeah, yeah, I wanted to talk about that as well. Yeah, I thought that was very interesting. So, you know, in order to have hope, you need to actually go and do stuff. Do stuff, yeah. Yeah. And I think this this is probably a, a conversation that you and I had 
uh, in terms of doubt. Doubt only kicks in once you're inactive. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's very hard to be doubtful. Much easier to be hopeful when you're actually working towards it's that like, goal. It's almost like the more work you do, you see the payoffs more, so you get less doubtful and, and you, you get, get more, more hopeful. hopeful. Yeah. Yeah. It's hard to quit when you when you work really hard hmm. do you know what i mean the 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 less you you work, get more invested into stuff you get invested and you get more hopeful yeah so when i was learning chinese and i still am but there's there's a there's a word that's tuo. Tuo is to make to do um uh so if you want to say i want to make a friend you use the word tuo, right but it's it's a verb essentially it's a, you have to to have a friend to make a friend you have, you have to, to do stuff do yeah. stuff it's not just have a friend yeah, yeah right it's 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 a it's a verb where you have to constantly uh be moving and doing things it's true and lots of things are like that like you know like relationships like you just said but even like the work and research that we do like you kind of you don't get that direction i'm in the trying to put together my thesis now and you don't get that story without putting in the work you know um i collected a whole lot of data and then kind of had a whole lot of a story assembled that in a story after i kind of looked at it mm. I, I didn't really have the story first yeah you, know, you have to go and do the work plug away at it and and try and work out what's happening after you've done the work yeah um and then that gives you that kind of hope and, and a vision to keep the future going, yeah, yeah exactly yeah and and we him and I we also spoke about and you were there as well but uh, about hope and despair and how much is, is there more hope in the world or more despair? Um, I think there's more hope. The world is a better place than it was a thousand years ago. Yeah, yeah. You it's know? hard to quantify that type of stuff, isn't it? Because I think um, can't I just use my belief? No. <laughs> <laughs> it's like the but you see, I think we see more despair. But I don't think there's necessarily means there is more despair. But, you know, I think the media in particular, the more media that we have now, you compare this to 200 years ago, we have way more media in our faces every day now, all the time. Mm. Um, and if some something terrible happens over the other side of the world, we hear about it, like, instantly. So maybe, maybe we see more despair now and we're exposed to more despair, but it'd be interesting to see if there actually is more despair or not. Uh, my my thought would be, if I had to guess, that quantifiably there's more hope than despair. But in terms of its representation, I think we see more despair than hope, as I think I mentioned with James, that we're biologically tuned in to look at things that are dangerous and that could threaten our own existence. Yeah, that's true. I wanted to talk a little bit about uh, trust. And I think you mentioned this as well in the discussion about why trust is important. And I think um, it's becoming increasingly more important because uh, we're seeing, and this came up as well in the discussion that you guys had, that anti-intellectualism seems to be increasing around the world as well. So I guess this issue comes up of how do you trust the information that you, yeah. that you see? Just, just to that point, I think um, overall we definitely do trust more than we did, let's say, a thousand years ago. Because uh, to have such complex civilizations and societies so interconnected, you can't have that without trust. No, it mm. will all fall apart. And your point, you know, there is this rise of anti-intellectualism that, and that, skepticism yeah. towards those who are experts. There's but there seems, yeah, go on. But there's less trust towards them and more trust towards people with YouTube 
uh, channels. Yeah, yeah, that, yeah. Well, that's <laughs> no, what I was going to get to. I was going to say so people it, still trust, but in the wrong place. Yeah, it seems like people, or or they just don't trust anybody, and they think that um, a reputable, a reputable uh, journalistic organization is equally as trustable as this is a terrible English, but just bear with me, people. <laughs> it's just equally as trustable as like your Alex Joneses and things like that. Infowars.com. Yeah, and I kind of. I don't understand that at all because, yeah, sure, people are just reporting, but you have one person who makes their living by selling products to people and the way they sell products to people is by having people watch their show and the way they get people to watch their show is being really extreme and just saying ludicrous stuff. Yeah? And then on the other hand, you have an organization that literally makes their money by being a trustworthy news source. So, yeah, sure, both people are just reporting on stuff, yeah? And, yeah, sure, you know, large news organizations could just make it up. They but have. If, but, but if they do just, yeah, and there's examples of that. But if they did it all the time, if you couldn't trust them, nobody would watch their show. Because people are watching their show to get reputable news. You know what I mean? Like they're they're vested. They have a vested interest in being trustworthy. Yeah. They have a vested interest in being telling the truth. Where Alex Jones has a vested interest in getting people to watch his show. And the way he does that is by saying more and more extreme things. So saying these two people are equally as trustable and, oh, I can be able to trust Alex Jones just as much as uh, some reputable news place mm. is actually kind of bullshit because yeah. because one like yeah sure sure both of them can make up crap i'm not denying that both of them could but mm. if you have to ask me which one i'm going to trust i'm going to go with the ones that have a vested interest in having trustworthy news because because if if all the large news networks if all they did was put out crap no one would trust them anymore and then no one will watch them for the news why do you think Where alex jones doesn't care if what he puts out is true or not because people watch him whether it's true or not anyway because they just want to see the fireworks. You see what I mean? It's yeah, like I, they have different, they're in different baskets. Sure. But I, I would say that uh, that's exactly why I don't watch the news. I, I, I agree with your point but I think the news itself is so skewed and, and full of shit yeah yeah I, I sure think I just don't pay attention to it <laughs> yeah <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean? yeah. I, I, and to I be make, fair I don't watch much news either yeah, can but. I make your point because uh, I had this conversation with a friend of mine the other day at Jiu Jitsu and uh, I, I have friends who are very skeptical of science uh, and the scientific establishment the opinions of scientists they think just the point you're making that their opinion is is essentially the same has the same value as someone who just makes a youtube video on on like let's say the, f the earth being flat those two yeah. really concern me and this is what you were trying to say as well what you were saying i should say is that it's like i, I, I told my friends so uh, for the guys who don't know I, i've been training jiu-jitsu for about four and a half years uh, i teach at that bulldogs mma so if you want to try that come over there it's pretty cool but i was telling my friend i'm like can you imagine I'm running these classes now. Can you imagine a white belt who's never had any sort of training, like completely out of shape, come to me and say, hey, hey, I mean, man, that what you're teaching over here, the triangle check, nah, all that doesn't work. Like, that's bullshit. Like, mm. I know. I'm like, okay, how long have you done? Did you say, oh, no, no, I just watched a YouTube video on it. That's how ridiculous it is. Like, this yeah. person thinks that what they watched on YouTube nullifies something that I've spent four and a half years of my life trying to perfect, and I'm yet to perfect it. It'll take a lifetime. But nonetheless, I have way more knowledge on this particular topic than this other person. And yet, 
just because he watched a YouTube video, he feels like his opinion is just as valid as someone who spent four and a half years studying this. Yeah. And to apply this back to science, I mean, we, we went to that talk with Eric where he was talking about he's, he's an engineer and he's a consultant uh, in the field of climate science and climate change. And before he could just actually get that introductory sentence out, people were like, you don't really believe in climate change. Like, yeah. Like, come on, man, I've spent like 20 years of my life researching, looking mm. at the science, why it is or isn't true, uh, how we can mitigate it, th this issue. And here you are with, with you know, one click of a YouTube video, you, you're acting like you're some expert because so-and-so said that on his YouTube video. And it's so interesting because those who treat the opinions of experts as being equal to the, the 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 opinions of those who have YouTube videos, they have zero ability to distinguish whether that person is telling yeah. bullshit or truth. And to your point, I mean, going back, is and I think that's where the skepticism comes from. It's just it's difficult to tell the difference, and so you get tricked. It's it would be so difficult for me to tell the difference between truth and falsehood in in a in a field that I have no experience, yeah. like no knowledge of, and that's why. I have to consult the experts, get their opinion, and then consult someone that who's completely different and see what the what the consensus of the experts are. If you're choosing one lone wolf who is some crazy who has some crazy wacko idea, then the chances are that crazy wacko idea is a crazy wacko idea. Yeah, and yeah. I'll give you one to finish off this rant. I'll give you a, a good example. There's a professor Duberg, I forgot his name. He was on the Jorgen experience. This guy, I think, had he made some great contribution in cell biology and the study of cancer. He he's a he's a tenure professor at some university, but he went on the Jorgen experience, essentially saying that um, that that AIDS is or I shouldn't say AIDS, HIV is a weak virus and does not cause. AIDS, but rather it's the partying habits of, um, you know, people in the homosexual community that leads to them having compromised immune systems, which is, I'm sure, true to a certain point. If you're popping pills and taking, like, drugs every weekend and partying hard, and I've had gay friends, dude, they party hard. But if you do that, that's going to affect your immune system. But to say that AIDS or HIV doesn't exist because of that and with no empirical evidence, right... It just shows it's so ridiculous. And when you have someone who's so outside, it's usually a telltale, telltale sign of him or her being full of shit. Yeah, yeah, I totally agree. Um, <clears throat> and I know, like, the obvious critique to this is, is that, oh, but those lone wolves, those people who do stuff differently and make amazing breakthroughs and things like that, which, which is a fair point. But you're exactly right. When you're breaking away from consensus, particularly on really, really big issues where there is a lot of consensus, then your chance of you being right is way less, is way smaller. And it reminds me of that as a really, really funny uh, Carl Sagan quote. Um, I just looked it up um, where he's talking about how uh, people say, oh, you know, they laughed at this genius. They laughed at this genius and they were right. Therefore, this other guy who's got this really bizarre theory, he's also right. Mm. So he's kind of like having a comment on that. And, and it begins uh, to quote, but the fact that some geniuses were laughed at does not imply that all who are laughed at are geniuses. <laughs> they laughed at Columbus. They laughed at Fulton. They laughed at the Wright brothers. But they also laughed at Bozo the Clown. <laughs> End quote. 
my god. Yeah, yeah, it's oh great. <laughs> it's great, and, and it makes a really good point. Like, like just because somebody's on the fringe, just because they got a whacked out idea that's different from the authority, doesn't necessarily mean they're right. And in fact, it probably means you should regard their idea with more skepticism. Yeah. Um, and 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 yeah, sure, we want to take those ideas, and people have profound ideas that change the whole nature of science and stuff, and that's all true, but. Still, fringe ideas have a less chance of being right than the yeah. Uh, one. Yeah, you know, general relativity was a fringe idea. Hmm. Do you know what solidified that as being legit? Tell us. Empirical data. Yeah. Yeah, that that's what's very important. So when you when you have a fringe idea, extraordinary claims require extraordinary evidence. Yeah. If you don't have that extraordinary evidence then you should shut up yeah because you're talking but nonsense. just but just to get like you're exactly right and i think that's a little bit more specific to science right because you can go and verify scientific claims but even to get back to that first point that i had even if you can't go and verify somebody's claims and you can't do that with some journalism right because journalism is very different from science and it's not quite it's not open it's quite closed um, and necessarily so because if someone's going to be a whistleblower and tell you some like personal information, you have to keep their identity a secret. So journalism kind of like hinges on stuff being secret and, mm. and closed. And, and if it didn't, wasn't secret and closed, journalism wouldn't work. Mm. And we wouldn't have these people blowing whistles and things like this. We wouldn't find out about corruption. So there's this inherent problem like if I can't go and check that this person actually said that, because you're hiding the source then how do i know you're right but then you can still make it that doesn't mean that you know that uh alex jones has the same credibility as i don't know cnn you know what i mean cnn they, is they fake don't. news bro yeah, yeah but that's the thing though but, it's but, true. but a lot of people make that claim oh you know cnn is is fake news and they're just as reliable as alex jones but but when you look at their motivations yeah mm. a, a news network like cnn they have a reputation as a trustable, reliable source to uphold, right? So they're trying to uphold that reputation. If they lose that reputation by putting out bullshit time and time again, that's going to cost them money. Alex Jones doesn't have that motivation. Alex Jones's motivation is how many eyes can I get to watch me on YouTube? And if he gets enough eyes to watch him on YouTube, he makes a shitload of money by selling diet supplements to them. Yeah. So he doesn't care if he tells the truth or not. He just cares about how crazy he is. And these different motivations, I think, can also talk to the level of trust that we have in different types of media organizations. And I think a lot of people just ignore that. And it's a big problem of this kind of age we're living in. Yeah. Can I just um, just play devil's advocate for a little bit? CNN... Uh, first of all, has put out the news recently, I think, uh, um, re regarding the Trump. Um, do you remember that they put up a news about Trump apparently peeing on some Russian hookers in, 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 in Russia somewhere? They literally put that out, dude. And that's why like, Trump went after them and said, no, you're just fake news. Yeah. So can I just offer a caveat? Even um, news organizations... They aren't there to give you the news per se. What they want to do, if I could finish my point, yeah. is they have sponsors, dude. They have ads that they have to sell, right? Yeah, so yeah. the only way they're going to do it, similar to uh, Alex Jones's uh, uh, approach, is they have to get more eyes looking at it. And that is one of yeah. the reasons going back but, to... But, but yeah. if I can make that point, yeah. if going back to James's uh, conversation, the only reason why 
they do that is because they know negative news is what people pay attention to. Yeah, and yeah. Sometimes, 100% agree with sometimes that. Sometimes it's, it's, it's easier to exaggerate negative news to get yeah. more people to pay attention. And, I, and I'm going to condemn Alex Jones for not not exaggerating a little bit but he he makes everything but the difference yeah the difference is the difference is you're right they both want to get people to watch their show right but the way cnn gets people to watch their show is by is by and it might not be 100 percent true but by the way they get people to watch their show is by portraying this image of being credible but that doesn't Alex necessarily Jones, mean it has to be true, like you yeah, said. Yeah, 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 exactly. And and I think I 100% agree with you in that um, in that they want to over-promote negative news, which I think we were touching on before about hope and despair I brought up, definitely, because they want people to watch their show. Sure. But they still have a reputation that they want to uphold of being credible, right? So they're motivated. Like, people watch their show because they think they're a credible news source. So they want to, like, keep that that going people don't watch alex jones because they think he's a credible news source oh, i don't think not don't many people. About that the people I think most people just like the, the I drama i don't know about that man the people that do watch alex jones uh, are legitimately yeah there's probably that, a few i, I no, give not that. A there's few, probably a few people probably think millions of people yeah legitimately yeah. he's got sources in nasa in cia and all these he literally like that's i mm. think they literally and genuinely believe that he he's he's legitimate i just want to go back to fox news and cnn because even them i, I do want to bash on them a little bit because cnn yeah, I, i'm don't get me wrong yeah, yeah. i'm totally down for bashing no on just because, because some of the things we touched on yeah, them before yeah. about how they bring up like um over negative news and things yeah. like that but sensationalizing news sure and they also do lazy stuff that really hurts scientific um, reporting like oh, yeah. they have these dubious scientific studies that people do and then they put out um polls and things and really it's just to sell a product they do a whole scientific study <laughs> and then they send the results in in scare quotes to yeah. like large news organizations and these journalists that are too lazy to do their research just like report on the results of product x increases this by this and it's just actually a big ad for product x yeah and, and a lot of this shit happens in credible scare quotes again news articles so don't get me wrong i'm, I'm not trying to like sell the traditional media as 100 percent trustworthy all the time I'm just saying I think that level of trust where you're comparing them to these whack jobs that just sure. say bullshit or whatever sure. they want on YouTube I don't think you can say those two are equally as reliable yeah. I think one's far more reliable yeah. than the other and a good example is Potholler 54 mm. Potholler 54 is a journalist but he goes and debunks yeah. many myths He's a science about journalist. He makes great YouTube videos. Yeah, yeah. And, he, and he shows you how he does the research. He goes, you go here, you go there, and he finds the original res the source and then yeah. critiques it really And well. even speaks to authors of original papers and yeah. things like this. So that's the way to do it. But I just want to go back on Fox and CNN because I know people who are listening will be like, you know, uh, you guys missed this point. You guys are this shills. You just sh trust the like mainstream media. <laughs> no, listen, I don't, I don't trust it. To be honest, I'm skeptical of everything that I everything that I hear and about half of what I see. But in terms of Fox Media, uh, Fox and CNN, it was so easy to see uh, during the Trump election how pro Hillary CNN was and how pro yeah, Trump yeah. Fox was. So when you see that, the illusion yeah. of 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 objective journalism just gets shattered. I think I think the the difference, the disparity you're seeing there, right, is is less about promoting lies because both those news networks lies. no 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 uh, let me let me 
expand that a bit. Um, both of those news networks have a vested interest in being or appearing credible, whether we agree they're credible or not. They have a vested interest in appearing like they're credible. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, but I, I think it's less about just making up bullshit rather than lies and more about selective reporting in, in those cases. But so Fox will selectively report positive Trump stories and CNN will selectively report po- positive Hillary stories yeah. and vice versa, negative stories about the other opposing candidate. So while, yeah, you could call that lying, that is I lying. think, yeah, 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 fair enough. That selective reporting is still different from just totally making up bullshit as well. Yeah? Sure. Which is what you see a lot sure. on like YouTube like celebrities and things like that where basically they can just they don't even have to just selectively selectively report Dude. the facts they can just make up their own fucking facts sure but what you're trying alternative to, facts yeah alternative facts but then that's like drawing a line between molestation and rape none of them are good yeah yeah Th- there yeah. should be a line yeah sure there sure and that's line. why I said like let me clarify like yeah, when yeah. I'm talking about lying I'm, I, I, a better word is probably because you're right it is dis- selective reporting is dishonest it's 100% dishonest. with it yeah, yeah. yeah for sure um, but, I, but I see that as different from totally making up your own facts sure. as well which CNN has yeah. and Fox News has by the way yeah yeah, yeah, uh, yeah exactly there's always examples of that as well so uh, essentially the summary of this talk was don't trust anything <laughs> no, 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 that's not the summary. No, that's you, that is you know you know. Yeah, I, I tell you why. Healthy because skepticism. How about we call that's it? That's it. Healthy yeah. skepticism is be good. skeptical of everything you read and see, and don't just trust it. Skepticism just doesn't mean not accepting stuff, though. No, no, no. Let's that's put not that caveat I mean. there. I, yeah. I just want to. Yeah, the news that you see, don't take it on face value. Our word, don't take it on face value. Go and research what we've talked about. Even I bet we've gone telling you to take not take stuff on face value. Don't yeah, take that at face value. Don't take that. Yeah. <laughs> so maybe just sit down and yeah. But but essentially, like that's so important, and we don't do enough of it. And I think that's part of the reason why we have this rise of anti-intellectualism. Anyway, I think we've ran it on for way longer than we thought we were going to, but it was interesting. So yeah, yeah, for you and I, everyone mm. else is like, bro. <laughs> hashtag conspiracy anyway uh thanks th- a lot thanks for listening a few people are liking our facebook page giving us five stars thank you lots guys keep it up <laughs> that, that's the best that's so much enthusiasm in, in in your voice when you say thank you guys for liking few people very nice good job <laughs> right could you be more robotic yet yeah, for the guys that have liked uh and or i shouldn't say like the guys that have given us a review on Facebook and on iTunes, we do appreciate um, that you've done that. It does help us a lot. So please keep doing that for the other guys. We'd like to see more feedback from you guys. And if you haven't already checked out our Facebook page, do that. and Send like. us questions for our guests. Send us questions as well. We'd love yeah. to hear them and address them viewer questions. It'd be great. Yep. So next week, we'll either have Alex's sister on. Um, who is in the field of gender study, or we might have my old supervisor, by all I mean, I just had him for a semester, um, Dr. Chris Kerrigan. I, I'm not, I think that's how you pronounce his last name. He is in the field of phonetics, essentially seeing how we create speech with our vocal tract. So that's really fascinating. I did a group project with him, or a project with him that I worked on. Um, so I'm, I'm excited to have both those guys on, and you'll find out which one's going to be on next week. That's it. Enjoy your life, people. And see you later. We'll see. And also check out Blog Coats. That's on blabcoats.com. Blog Coats is where our blogs and articles are kept. We've got a few up there now, don't we? Yeah, we do. Okay. 
See you guys. Thanks for listening to Blabcoats. Rate and review our podcast on iTunes or wherever you get your podcast because it does help us spread the word. And if you like what we're doing here, then help us grow it by sharing this with a friend, a friend of a friend, or your mailman, even your mailman's mailman. We also want to hear from you, so send us questions or comments to blabquotes at gmail.com. And if you have any interesting questions or comments, then we'll talk about it on air.